Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, May the 6th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today, Pat Leahy. You're very welcome, Pat. Morning, Hugh. And also Fintan O'Toole, live from Glasnevin. Hi, Fintan. Hi, Hugh. Uh, we're having a conversation on Zoom here, and we were just discussing how uh, your, your extension at the back of your house is known across the United States now because you've been speaking to CNN, MSNBC, and all kinds of people in light of the piece which you wrote about America and the Trump administration, which seemed to get a lot of purchase over there. Yeah, it's very weird. You know, um, I'm in this business a long time. You, you, you never have any sense at all of whether uh, a piece you write is going to be of any interest to anybody. You know, um, sometimes you think, this, I know this one is really going to make an impact, you know, and it's like complete silence. And then you just write a piece which you think is fairly obvious, you know, and it, it, it becomes huge. Um, I, I wrote a piece about, about Trump or, or, you know, about sort of, about America as well in, in light of Trump's extraordinarily appalling behavior. And I think the thing that sort of made it go wild in America was the use of the word pity. I just said that, you know, I think a lot of people are feeling pity for the United States, for people in the United States. Um, and it wasn't meant facetiously at all. And I don't think it was mostly taken that way, you know, but you realize it's, it's a word that Americans have never seen anybody use about them before. You know, like being in America is obviously, very obviously, it's, it's just truth universally acknowledged as the best thing you could possibly be. And and the idea that anybody might be looking at it from the outside, I'll say, Jesus, I'm glad I'm not there. You know, however bad it is for the rest of us, can you imagine being locked in uh, and locked down with a malignant narcissist? You know, and, and that, that seems to have... Uh, really sort of struck a nerve and and um it's, it's it is still interesting to watch this the way you know so um i think john cusack the actor was one of the first people to sort of take it up and then but you have to remember this is behind a paywall in the irish times right so people can't read it <laughs> so people start copying it and it's kind of going around and john cusack and bet midler and mia farrow and then it's, it's all over the place you know it's like so uh so this is anyway a long way of explaining why my my um, extension at the back of my house has has been uh, has become a kind of broadcasting studio. Pat, who's been retweeting you lately? I, I haven't seen Bette Midler pop up in my in my mentions or John Cusick for 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 that matter. Um, in fact, I I haven't even made it with the lovies over here. Not to not to mind uh, across the pond. So, uh, uh, but I'm slightly grateful that uh, my untidy bedroom from which I am now broadcasting has not. Uh, been broadcast across the US in the way that Finton's Dermot Bannon inspired extension has. Now, it, I mean, it occurs to me, Finton, you know, listening to you there, that one of the one of the peculiarities for us here in Ireland is that um, because we're part of the Anglosphere, um, we see the performance of our own government uh, through a prism of uh, the United Kingdom and the United States, which probably um, which is probably of some benefit to our government. Yeah, um, you know, not 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 to be facetious about it, but but if your competition, as it were, um, is Boris Johnson on the one side and Donald Trump on the other side, 
um, then it's not that hard to look good. Uh, and that, this doesn't mean that, you know, not a lot of very good things that uh, Leo Varadkar's government has done. You know, they broadly followed WHO advice and, and didn't start convincing themselves that Ireland had to have a completely distinctive national response. You know, let's just try and follow what's best practice. Uh, uh, and that that undoubtedly has saved an awful lot of lives, you know. So, so uh, obviously these international comparisons, uh, you know, any, any statistician will tell you that you've got to be very careful about them. But it is just a fact that the, the biggest concentration of deaths in Europe is almost certainly on one side of us, and, and the biggest concentration of deaths on, uh, in the world is on the other side, in, in, in the U.S., um, however, I, I, I do think this has a slightly deleterious effect as well, you know, which is, yes, if your standard is, is Boris Johnson and, and Donald Trump, uh, then we're succeeding fantastically. Uh, however, it's very clear that serious mistakes have been made in Ireland. Um, uh, and you know that we're 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 not one of the best performing countries, to put it mildly. Uh, the testing regime has been really really poor. Uh, you know, we, we we have a lot of evidence of even people in the health service waiting for a week, two weeks for the results of a test. So there's been a lot of concentration on the number of tests. But actually, what matters is not the number of tests; it's it's how quickly you get them back. Getting getting a result of a test like this in two weeks is not much use to anybody. Um, and there's been perhaps not enough scrutiny of why that's the case. But I think also there's no question but that the uh, the the system, such as it was, took its eye off the ball in relation to residential institutions, nursing homes institutions, people with intellectual disabilities and so on. And we're now seeing uh, the results of that, which is that almost certainly by the time this is over, we're going to be looking at something like 60, 65% of all deaths will be in those institutions. And we need to ask why and what kind of system produced this. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that uh, we had, so in, in July 2017, government adopted a system for national emergencies right so a lot of work went into this uh it's all it's on the internet you can read the plan it's all there you know it's been rolled out so it was used in fact for the floods for the storms you know so it's a system which has been tried and tested um and it includes pandemics right so it's it's there for pandemics as well and and when the pandemic hit the system was completely abandoned uh, uh, for reasons that nobody has explained right and it's a system of setting up the National Emergency Coordinating Group, you know, which people will be familiar with from the previous crisis. And people have seen it on the six o'clock news. You know, the, and it's a very wide group of people who are brought together to coordinate an all of government's approach, bring in all the agencies, make sure everybody's on board with the same message, make sure that all the information is feeding in in the right way. And I don't think that system would have missed the fact that nursing homes were going to be ground zero of the crisis. Uh, and there's no question but that the system that we did establish, which is the National Health Emergency Team, which is a, a system which is not anywhere in the government plan, which is kind of set up, uh, that system did miss. I mean, we you know we know it was 12 meetings in before they even talked about nursing homes. We know that the first time they talked about nursing homes, 
It was to, to countermand the measures that nursing homes were already taking to say, let's not let in visitors. These are serious mistakes. And the point is not to blame people. People are acting under terrible pressure. But we do need to know why was that system adopted? And what is it learning? So this is not a crisis that's over, obviously. It's going to be going on for months and months in different forms. We need to know that we have a system which has been capable of learning from the mistakes that it's made. Pat, can you shed any light at all on the decision-making process, presumably quite a quick decision-making process and really at a moment of impending crisis, in a sense, I think, of, of, of dread at the time. We're talking around the time in February when this, the really you know bad stories were starting to come out of places like Bergamo in Italy. But what was the process by which the, the structures which Finchon has just described for emergency measures were set aside uh, in favour of what, what we've actually had? I just don't know the reason for that. And I made a couple of attempts to find out um, to no avail. What people in and around the system say is that what you must appreciate is that the impending scale of what appeared to be on the horizon at that stage, that early stage, uh, was so terrifically awful in terms of the hospitals, the wider health system being completely overwhelmed of A&E's filling up with the, or of A&E, both A&E's and ICU's filling up within uh, a couple of days to the extent that they couldn't accommodate any more patients where, uh, where people were dying in their own homes, which was beginning to unfold in Northern Italy. Um, it seems to me that the uh, the system which had been the emergency planning system which had been in place uh, designed for you know extreme weather events and things like that, notwithstanding the fact that, as Finton says, it specifically mentions pandemic, was viewed as being just unsuitable to cover something or to deal with something of this magnitude and something specifically designed and focused on public health was what was needed. Now, I'm open to correction as to whether that was precisely the decision-making process, but it seems, judging from a couple of conversations I've had with people, to seem, it seems to me to be the best, uh, the best explanation. I've no doubt that there should, there, will, there should and will be some sort of, uh, of a forum when we're through the worst of the tr- this crisis, whether it will be uh, whether it will be the Dahl Committee that's going to be set up today or uh, another forum to look back and uh, to look back at exactly how the crisis was managed to explain fully uh, the decisions that were made, particularly in that early stage, like the one that stands out for many people, the decision to tell nursing homes to rescind their advice to keep people uh, away from nursing homes. The one that's the one that looks particularly inexplicable uh, to uh, to many people, uh, uh, but others other other decisions I think, and I think the purpose of that would be, as Fitted says, not to point fingers and to blame people, uh, but to learn lessons for the future because clearly this is going to be with us for some time, and who knows what uh, 
you know, who knows what the future holds in terms of, of, of similar challenges arising. One final point I think um, uh, to make is, uh, is to understand the context in which these decisions were made. I think Fintan's been pretty fair uh, about that. But, you know, the sort of projections for deaths, one person that I spoke to um, uh, just over the weekend uh, on this subject was talking about that in the early phase of the crisis, what ministers were being told was that you could have 20, 30, 40,000 deaths. And that wasn't the worst case scenario. Now, I think we need to uh, we need to know more about that. I think if ministers and senior public health officials, um, I, I, I'm not sure that they will have much to fear from uh, an inquiry. I think that the context in which they're making those decisions, the more we know about it, may um, may excuse them. It may not. It may not. But um, uh, I, I think that is probably one part of the next phase of, phase of this. I suppose, Fintan, uh, um, if we try and place ourselves back almost two months ago now, in, in, in early February or thereabouts, one of the things I, I should say that, that, that I found very refreshing about the kind of the public face of the of the state in this crisis is the presentation of the, the the scientific experts, the professionals, the people who are actually at the cold face of it, the Killian de Gascoons, or the people who are explaining it to the public, like Professor Luke O'Neill. Um, from the very start, it seems to me, they've made it clear to, to people the very important fact that we know very little about this disease and we still do. And that because of that, we're making best estimates and sometimes those estimates will be wrong and making the wrong decisions in these situations, although it has to happen, are going to have the most dire consequences, which might have been unimaginable only 12 months or, or, or so ago. And they've they've been pretty frank about that from the start. And and what, what Pat describes there in relation to the, the, the focus on ramping up the health infrastructure, the ICUs, the ventilators, the emergency facility out in City West, which, as far as I know, never needed to be never needed to be used, was was completely understandable, and you can understand why the focus was on that, wasn't it? And the other point I'd make, I suppose, is we were talking about other countries, is that we're not the only country that's had a problem with um, with nursing homes and with facilities for for older people. So while on one way, in the classical way of political analysis, you can say the eye was taken off the ball, a mistake must be made, there must be some form of accountability for it. In another way, this is part of, I don't like the metaphor of being at war, but it is the metaphor which is applicable sometimes. It was like the early stages of a war, and some decisions in retrospect were wrong, they had tragic consequences, but there were bound to be some of those types of decisions made. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's it's crucial to understand that in the circumstances that was, that we were facing and that the people most directly involved were facing, mistakes were absolutely inevitable. That, that they're not shameful, like this isn't Trump, right? So it's not, it's not malign, right? So far as we know, and, and you know, I no reason to doubt it, everybody involved has been acting in a benign way for the public good as they see it. So this is not about, um, you know, this is your fault and you've got blood on your hands sort of stuff. That, that's not at all what this is about. It's about systems, right? And, and uh, it, it, it remains mysterious and to me inexplicable why the systems which were in place were completely dumped. I, I can perfectly understand saying, 
they're not quite adequate. We need to do something else, right? We we need another another wheel on this vehicle, or you know, we need to, we need a special public health emergency team, which had been done with SARS and all this stuff. So there was some precedent for that. Um, uh, but, but to completely dump the system that was in place. Remember, what you've got to remember is this was the system adopted by government, right? It's not, it's not a policy paper. It's not a, you know, some way of saying, wouldn't it be a good idea to do it like this? This was a complete formal cabinet decision made by Leo Varadkar's cabinet. So Leo Varadkar was Taoiseach already at this time to implement this system. So what that means is, you had over two years of every single government department training in the system, saying, this is the way we're going to respond. Right? We now know what we're going to do when a horrible emergency, including pandemics, and this is very important, including pandemics. This is what we're going to do when it hits. This is the system we have in place. So you have almost everybody involved in, in government. But remember, this is not just government. It's the guards. It's local government, it's the HSE, it's all the state and public agencies that you can imagine. Right? It, 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 it remains inexplicable to me, and Pat has said that he can't get an explanation, I haven't been able to get an explanation. Nobody can explain it at all. Right? Um, there was a control freak um, impulse, right, which was to concentrate all of this in a very small group of people in the Taoiseach's department. Uh, I perfectly understand that for a week, for two weeks, you know, let's get our bearings, let's, let's you know, concentrate everything here. I don't understand that as this becomes an unfolding crisis, which we know is going to go on and on and on. And if you were going to do that, you had to build in some mechanisms of contradiction. What we know is, this is just not blaming, it's just, it's just a human fact, right? Which is that if there's not somebody there saying, hold on a minute, what about the nursing homes? Or, you know, are you really sure that this testing thing is going to work like the way you're saying it? Or, you know, there has to be mechanisms whereby other people's experience is being brought in. That's what the system was supposed to be. Remember also the existing system, which was scrapped. If you read that document, it, it goes on and on and on about transparency. It goes on about, you know, everybody must know exactly what it is we're doing, why and when, and that must be communicated to everybody, not in some sort of vague way. It sets up mechanisms for saying, basically, you meet at 9 a.m. by 12 o'clock, every single person who needs to know knows exactly what the decision is. You know, the, the system's in place for being absolutely transparent. And the following day, when you come back, you say, why didn't that happen? You know, th th these are systems. This is not about blaming individuals, but this is, these are systems that need to be in place to handle a crisis. And you don't ditch them when a crisis happens. You know? And say, oh, the crisis is very bad. We, we ditch the system. This is exactly when you need all of these kinds of things. And to go back to the nursing home thing, it's an extraordinary decision. I mean, inexplicable decision. Remember, it doesn't matter if you're, and you're absolutely right in your, what you were saying about the concentration is on the hospital system. That's perfectly understandable. That's, that's what a lot of governments were doing. But to actually reverse a decision which was already in place, and had already been made by the nursing homes, right? So the people on the ground are saying, we know what we have to do here. We have to stop visitors coming in because otherwise they're going to infect our, our clients. To reverse that and say, oh, no, 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 don't, don't do that, is, is absolutely inexplicable. And the only way you can think that something like that happens is because there's not enough information going into the decision-making process, right? 
it's not just, I suppose I use the phrase eye off the ball. It's actually more than that. It's, it's, it's that you have tunnel vision, right? You're, you're concentrating on a certain kind of set of problems and you're just not seeing or don't want to see or can't cope with the other problems. This is exactly why you need an all of government approach. If, if the local government was involved, for example, in this, which it's supposed to be, do you really think local government would have been saying, hold on a minute, there's a nursing home down the road in Tume and I've got a real problem here, you know? And, and we know that the people who work in that nursing home, I tried to write about this and, you know, but the people who are working in the nursing homes in many cases are migrants. They're, they're mostly female. A lot of them are very badly paid. A lot of them are themselves living in, in you know, eight, nine to a house. You know, people on the ground could see this. And I know for a fact that people were screaming about this sort of stuff. So it's not like that nobody was saying it, but somehow that wasn't feeding into the system. And what we need to now ask is, look, it's not just about looking back and saying, you know, what, what went wrong. It's about saying, what kind of system do we need right now? Which means we're learning from these things and adjusting the system as it goes along so that it has this transparency and this responsiveness. Well, the interesting point about that, Pat, it seems to me there's lots of interesting points, but the most particularly interesting one is at this very moment in time, this is the sort of the week of the pivot, really. We've had the the roadmap for the summer laid out for us. We've had the first, albeit very relatively minor, um relaxation of restrictions on on movement and and some kinds of some kinds of activity we're moving from what um in, in the way i think one writer has framed it as moving from the hammer which was the lockdown to the dance which is the much more elaborate complex tricky uh process of gradually opening up different parts of society over the next over the, over the next few months and probably at times maybe shutting some of them down again when the when the virus uh, reappears um, whatever the merits of the system that was put in place two months ago, it seems ill-suited to running that much more complex process, um, dealing with the inevitable conflicts of interest which are likely to emerge, um, and being as open about it as possible so that people are bought into it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, again, to say, for all that mistakes have been made, uh, and we've gone through a couple of them. I think um, that if the country was offered the current situation that we have, uh, you know, six, seven, eight weeks ago, I think uh, everybody would have taken it and breathed a sigh of relief. On the other hand, in a way, the shutting down, and I don't, I don't mean this in a trite way, but the shutting down was the easy bit. You know, I know, of course, it wasn't easy. But in a way, it's a simpler decision to make and an easier decision to enforce than a gradual loosening of the restrictions with all the sorts of trade-offs, big and small, uh, that will uh, that will have to come over the summer. I think that's going to be a tremendously difficult task uh, for the government to manage and already this week, we see one of the traditional processes of the way we have chosen to govern ourselves, which is by listening to interest groups, lobby groups and accommodating them insofar as we can. We see that manifesting itself with one of the traditional powerful interest groups, the publicans, agitating for an earlier lifting of the restrictions on their uh, on on their industry with it seems to me some justification uh 
you know, um, in, in terms of the comparison between pubs and, uh, uh, and, and restaurants, at least for some of their operations or their operations for some parts of the day. But I think that is going to be a very complex uh, and difficult political operation. And already, again, we see that in the last week, our system of cabinet government, which is supposed to be the ultimate executive authority in the country beginning, but which hasn't really functioned. Cabinet government hasn't functioned really uh, as the executive arm of the state over the last two months. The decisions have been made by the public health officials and endorsed by small group of senior officials, Minister of Health, uh, health and, the, uh, and the Taoiseach. Then they've been announced to the cabinet, even up to and including last week, though the cabinet sought to assert itself uh, last week, and we read a, a, a fair bit uh, about that in uh, in the newspapers. The cabinet decision to open up the uh, to, to 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 ease to continue the lockdown in almost all respects for another fortnight, and to ease it in a couple of small respects that. The cabinet made that decision on Friday, by which time Friday afternoon, by which time arrangements to implement it and to advertise it had already been made. So the cabinet didn't really make uh, that decision. That decision was made, like all the other ones, in the Department of Taoiseach, involving senior officials from that department, senior public health officials, and senior officials from the uh, from the the Department of Health. But I think we are moving just as we're moving from the initial acute phase. Of dealing with the disease that with dealing with the pandemic, so the process for decision making about that is moving to its next phase, and I think that will be quite tricky and will require very careful management uh, by politi- by the whatever political leadership uh, of the country uh, is in place, not least because it will require balancing of the ultimate trade-off, I suppose, which is between reopening social, commercial and economic life and the threat that that presents to public health. So, you know, if you want to maintain, you know, 100% or as near as you can to 100% public health security, you keep everybody locked down until the autumn. But socially and economically, that isn't possible. So the politicians who are now seeking to assume or reassume their executive role, politicians in the cabinet, will have to judge as between the public health advice and the economic and the social reality. One of the things that ministers have said to me is that it's not just a matter of reopening the economy it's the it's the social the the continuing uh, uh social permission for the for our, our tolerance rather of the uh, of 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 the lockdown and the need for people to reestablish their uh, their social lives which is one of the things that is behind the voices to ease the lockdown that we've heard at cabinet over the last week
Yeah, because I mean, one of the things about this lockdown, which I I, I personally think is forgotten sometimes, is this is you know this is declared by the state. There was legislation put in place, but this is not being enforced by armed soldiers on the street or anything of that sort. In fact, in many cases, the public were well ahead of the regulations and starting to take the measures and starting to stay at home if possible, and all the all those kinds of things. And to come back to the earlier point about some of the grotesque behaviour in the United States, for example, making us look good. Some of the debates there about the conflict between supposedly the economy in one hand and the binary opposite of losing lives on the other has just has has made any other debate including the one here look sophisticated but Fintan I don't think it's as sophisticated as it as it should be it's it's certainly not just a question of the economy versus health it's not even a question of the economy and society versus health as as Pat says there it's people's personal lives it's their psychological well-being it's the whole range of human activity and human experience and it ranges from everything from uh, you know young people's exams to old people's social interactions to everything in between and the incredibly uh, powerful impact of this huge economic shock, which is going to have on people's lives and their health and their well-being as well. It's bloody difficult. You're absolutely right. I, I couldn't agree more strongly. And it goes back to what Pat was saying earlier, which I think is absolutely right too. Like that grotesque, as it seems to say it, in, in one way, in terms of a public discourse, or you think through the easy bit, which is, it was pretty obvious by the time we locked down, you know, I mean, <laughs> even though it wasn't obvious to the Brits for another week, um, pretty obvious that this is what you had to do. And as Pat said, even people were kind of already ahead of it here, I think. Um, so w- w- what uh, fuels that is public consent and, and public willingness to, to take part in it. That's why it's worked. Uh, I mean, if people wanted to defy this thing, right, there's no police force in the world can could could stop them. Uh, you, you know, so so... It's been a very, very good example of democratic consent, of social solidarity. Um, the vast majority of Irish people have behaved brilliantly uh, throughout the thing. Um, and what do we learn from that? Well, what we learn is that um, that that consent is both uh, absolutely of the essence and is um, achievable. <laughs> people are people are actually quite intelligent, quite clued in. Uh, and absolutely understand that the, this thing is going to go on in one form or another for a very long time. It's even when the public health effects begin to diminish, the economic effects are going to be absolutely enormous. The tragedy that you, that could unfold now is if you screw up this much more difficult part, right? Which is this much more nuanced, subtle set of messages coming from authority. If you screw that up and you lose that sense of consent. If you lose that broad idea that we're in this together and that we're, you know, we're we're adults and we're 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 thinking about all of these things and balancing them all in our own lives, uh, that's when you can start to get incredibly serious um, social disorder. Uh, literally, so in terms of people breaking the rules, but also I think in in the broader sense of a breaking apart of this sense of solidarity. Um, so. The question of consent isn't a sort of abstract question about management processes, right? It's it's absolutely of the essence in all of this. And it's just as much a question of the economics of this and how that plays out as it is of the health crisis. So what people are going to have to know is, is two things. One is they're going to have to understand is why are these more complex decisions being made? 
How are they being made? What's the rationale for them? And that needs to be vastly more open than it has been. You, know, you cannot go on with a secretive system whereby people we didn't elect, however wonderful they are, uh, are essentially making decisions. You know, as Pat was saying, cabinet hasn't been making decisions. So who has? I mean, our system of government has basically been in the bales, maybe for very good reasons, but that's that's what it ha- what we've had. So how do we reestablish a system of governance that is appropriate to, to the times we're in? That's a big question. It's a big democratic question, right? We're going to actually have to um, think a lot about how we do governance. Uh, but secondly, uh, there has to be justice. We know from every study of human behavior, right, that people will put up with a hell of a lot if they think it's being done fairly. If Once they start thinking it's being done unfairly, then it falls apart. Um, there's a great um, social psychological experiment that's been done over and over in different, different cultures, right, and, and so it, it seems to be universal, right, which is it's an experiment where you, the experimenter, has a, an amount of money, it has to be significant amounts of money, right? Um, and you, you, you get two people and it's real money and you say, okay, I'm giving you, I'm giving Pat the money, say the $100, right? Um, he has to offer Fintan as much of that money as he thinks Fintan will accept. However, if Fintan doesn't accept what he offers, I take all the money back. Neither of you gets any money. Right? It's a really interesting one because it, it's about what what will people offer and what will they accept, and universally, uh, almost nobody will offer less than a third, right? But also, almost nobody will accept less than a third. Now, rationally, it's free money, right? You're, you're getting thirty dollars that you didn't have before for nothing, absolutely nothing. But people won't accept it. They say, well, if that bastard's going to keep, you know, most of the money. Well, if I know he's not going to get the money either, then then okay, okay. If that's the game you want to play, then screw your money. You know, the whole thing falls apart if if once people stop feeling that there's some basis of fairness. So we're going into a massive economic crisis. I mean, this is you know, this is this is huge. This is you know, a, a generational economic crisis. And the last one we did, we did extremely badly for all sorts of reasons. We don't need to go go into all of those, but you know. We did bank bailouts, we did austerity, we, we doubled child poverty, we did lots of stuff that was really dreadful. And the question is, that people need to know, and this is where a new government is going to be crucial, is like, what's the deal this time? Right? If people feel that the pain and the gains are being shared in a fair way, I think consent will be there. But if they don't, then we could be facing this sort of interaction of all the problems, the public health crisis, but also all the problems of an economic crisis, which becomes a political crisis because people don't believe that this thing is being handled in a way that has some kind of social justice and solidarity at its heart. A new government is a pretty important part of this, isn't it, Pat? Yeah, and those sort of questions that Fintan uh, presages there are the sort of questions that will face the new government pretty promptly, um, I think. You know, there's recent days been an awful lot of understandable focus on the climate action aspects of a putative programme for government, which may or may not be agreed in the coming weeks between Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens. But the economic aspects of it are going to be at least 
uh, as difficult to decide and to apply as the uh, uh, as the climate action aspects of it. With one caveat to that, I think, which is that insofar as the external economic conditions uh, remain favourable to Ireland, by which I mean that markets, bond markets continue to let us borrow the necessary resources to get over both the initial costs of the pandemic, um, which, you know, will occur this year, early next year, but also to fund the adjustments over time, which will uh, which will require greater state spending, I think, on what is almost certain to be in the uh, in the interim period, at least, uh, a, a considerably bigger state. So once the external conditions remain OK, and I think there's a fair chance that they will, um, then that adjustment, the economic adjustments that uh, that will be required to be made over the uh, over the medium term, I think, will be nowhere near as painful as they were the last time a decade ago that we had to go through something similar to this process. But if the external conditions deteriorate, and that depends on a whole host of things, not with not 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 least the uh, the attitude of central banks, the state of U.S.-China relations, the state of world trade, the presidential election in the United States, and all those sort of things that could impact on the availability of finance for Ireland on the bond markets, uh, and all of those things, of course, are out of Ireland's control. Um, so insofar as they remain benign, um, then I think the the uh, any adjustment over time will be uh, will be bearable without the sort of social costs that we saw the last time. But if the external environment deteriorates, then I think we're into a whole new ballgame. I want finally, Fintan, and, and and then to you, Pat, just to ask you about a, a kind of a, a related subject, which is the responsibility of, of, of us in the media and how well we do this job, which is much more complicated for us as well, I think, uh, than it has been uh, at times in the past. And sometimes we tend to kind of shy away from that. I was reading a piece in the Atlantic magazine last week and it quoted the the uh, the American uh, media academic Jay Rosen, who was very critical of the way in which journalism has been has been uh, covering this crisis. And he said, I'm going to quote this, he quote, he says, journalists still think of their job as producing new content. But if you if your goal is public understanding of COVID-19, one piece of new content after another doesn't get you there. And I kind of I recognise what he's talking about there when I look at the the news headlines in a bulletin or indeed the front page lead of 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 a newspaper. There's something both kind of unsatisfying about it and also that's somehow not not fit to the task at hand in understanding the 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 breadth and the sweep and the longevity of this event that we're in at the moment. Yeah, I th- I think that's fair. Um I mean some of it's just inbuilt into the nature of where we are. Um Doing journalism is very, very difficult at the moment. You know, we're 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 isolated as well. I mean, I know so, so, some of our colleagues are out and about and are able to 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 do the sort of basic old-fashioned reporting, but it, that itself is 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 extremely difficult. Um, and yes, there there does come a point at which the relentlessness of how many people died today, you know, which is the, mostly what the new content is. 
um, becomes counterproductive. I mean, you have to report it, of course, it is it is relevant and it's stuff that people need to know. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be entirely pessimistic about it. I mean, uh, you know, we don't want to pat ourselves on our, on our own backs, but I mean, looking at the Irish Times coverage, for example, it's been superb at contextualizing internationally, right? So uh, I think the paper's done a great job of, of, of allowing people to see what's happening in Ireland in the context of what's happening everywhere else so that they've got some kind of comparator and some sense of the, the global scale of this thing. Um, I think it's also been as good as it possibly could be at trying to get behind the statistics you know, and to understand uh, you know, we've had some brilliant reporting on on the the, the crisis in, in 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 residential institutions, care homes. You know, um, so there are things that can be done to counteract the sort of relentlessness of just the new new thing, the next the next hour, the next day, um, and trying to look more broadly at at, at how this is unfolding. Um, but the challenge is, is absolutely immense, and of course, it's being met at a time when, you know, the crisis is also hammering independent media. You know, the, the revenue sources have, have, have dried up. Uh, so we are going to go into a phase, I think, undoubtedly, just as we've been talking about the necessity for governments to start thinking much bigger and in a much broader and more transparent way. Uh, I think media are going to have to do that as well. And we're, going to, we're going to have to actually um, up, up the contextualization of the news, you know, and, and, and start thinking about this crisis as not just this sort of public health crisis that, you know, is the main frame and narrative that we've had for it. And, and thinking about it, as, as you were saying earlier, you know, in terms of the, the social, human, economic, experiential crisis, this is a, this is a, a watershed in modern history that we're going through and we're going to have to try to place that somewhere for people. Pat, do you find your job tough at the moment? I think we're doing an amazing job. I think our podcast's <laughs> been especially brilliant. I think Fintan's done, you know, so well. How do you think I've done, Fintan? Uh, Superbly, yeah. of course. Thanks. <laughs> no, look, um, I think there's some interesting points raised by the piece in The Atlantic to which you refer and clearly finding out things and putting them on the front page isn't on its own uh, enough. But it's a pretty important part of journalism, particularly when, you know, people in powerful positions might not want you to put those things on the front page or might not want you to use the sort of emphasis that we might choose to to use on them. Um, I mean, I think there is also room for us to develop... You know what, um, I think it's Lionel Barber, the, the former FT editor, called a scoop of interpretation, which is uh, not just to present new facts, but to put those facts in a particular uh, context. Um, so I think particularly as we enter the next phase, while also looking back at the phase that has just gone and some of those questions that we covered earlier in our conversation, I suppose, um are not unconnected to uh, 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 to this. I think that will be important for us. It's important for us to be critical, but it's important for us to be fair and also to contextualise uh, fairly. So, look, how have we done so far? We're the worst lads to be um, 
to be to be judging that. I think, you know, we should let observers and readers discuss that. But I think finally, what I think we should uh, admit, we should acknowledge is that while it's certainly a bit weird doing our jobs the way we're currently having uh, to do them, um, you know, rather than being in Leinster House all the time, I find myself there highly infrequently uh, now, which makes it harder to do our jobs. But nothing like as hard as it is for people, you know, like um, Sally Hayden, who's done some brilliant work for us on, you know, how the crisis is beginning to affect Africa. Um, you know, um, uh, uh, another uh, another one of our reporters, Naomi O'Leary, in who's our new uh, Brussels correspondent, has done brilliant reporting from all over uh, all over Europe. And unless these people were kind of prepared to go out there and put themselves in the front line and report for people, these are stories that I think wouldn't be uh, wouldn't wouldn't be reported. So um, the, the the last thing we should be doing is clapping ourselves uh, on on the back. Um, but uh, um, but if other people want to do it, um, certainly, I don't think we should object. Absolutely. And I'm sure you'll agree, both of you, that I'm doing a terrific job too. But we are going to leave it there. Thanks thanks very much to Fintan and to Pat for joining us. Thanks to JJ Vernon, who was on the virtual desk today, and also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan. Do remember that if you would like to support this podcast and the journalism, which the Irish Times continues to produce at what Fintan has quite correctly characterised as a particularly difficult time for media, uh, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you want to get in touch with us, we would be more than delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.